Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Hey, all It's Jesse, the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Maybe you have heard of me. A quick announcement. We're really excited to share it with you. We're going to be doing a very special live episode of Bullseye. It's going to be Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. What are you going to see if you go to Portland, Oregon to see this show? You will see me live on stage talking with folks like Corin Tucker from Slater Kinney, director Lance Bangs, writer Bill Oakley, Simpsons legend. Uh, we will also have live music from Roseblood and live comedy from Katie Wen. It's going to be a blast and a half. It's also part of a big podcast festival called Listen Up Portland. Tons of other great podcasts are playing at it, too. Our pals, the Doughboys, among others. So, again, that's Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at listenupportland.com. And thanks. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest this week is Carol Kane. Carol's a veteran in the biz. She started acting in 1971 and pretty quickly landed some pretty heavy roles. One of her first films was in the Mike Nichols drama, Carnal Knowledge. Later on, she'd work on other classics, like Annie Hall, Dog Day Afternoon. She was even nominated for a Best Actress Oscar for her part in the 1975 film, Hester Street. But she found her home doing comedy, something she never expected she'd do coming up. She appeared on Taxi as the wife of Lotka, Andy Kaufman's character. She was in the Muppet movie, The Princess Bride, Scrooged, lots more. Now on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, she plays Lillian, Kimmy's landlord. The last six episodes of Kimmy Schmidt just dropped on Netflix. Here's a clip from the show's second season. In this scene, her tenant, Titus, just rented out his apartment to a couple on Airbnb. Lillian, for her part, is pretty steamed about it. (gasps) How could you? What were you thinking bringing internet people into our neighborhood? I was thinking I could get $80 to buy a wonderful box of capes that I saw at a medical supply store. Don't you get it? They're hipsters, and that means gentrification. Ah, listen to me. I miss the old days when the longest word I knew was friggin' Giuliani. They're not hipsters. They're just two hayseeds from Texas whose bodies will wash up in the East River in a couple of weeks. Crabs eating their eyes, their genitalia stuffed in their mouths. Stop telling me what I want to hear. I like the neighborhood the way it is. Morning, Method Charlie. Why can you eat? Well, it doesn't matter. Our guests will be here later today. Carol Kane, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be had. I forgot about the box of capes from the medical <laughs> supply store. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've lived in New York a long time. Yes. Um, since you were a teenager, right? Yes. I, I moved to New York when I was 12. And before that, I had been moving around with my family a great deal. So I consider myself a New Yorker because... I've lived there the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Did you move to New York because you wanted to be an actress, or was it a convenient coincidence? Well, uh, when I was 12, my mother had moved there. My parents were divorced, and my mother moved to New York. And I, I did 
decide that I was going to go to a school called Professional Children's School, which was a school where if you got a job, you could do your homework by correspondence. You could check out during the day to go audition for things. It was a very hard school, but you they supported the working kid. And so that's where I went. I was obsessed. And people say New York doesn't support the garment industry. You see that? <laughs> Um, it, it was pretty great, but they uh, all the kids there were working kids. Was that weird? I mean, you had you were born in like Cleveland, right? You had lived in regular places. To tell a little story, I don't think any place I ever lived was regular because I and my family were there, <laughs> and, and, and we were we were a rather complicated lot. So, I mean. It was what I wanted. It was what I had passion for. There were uh, a lot of the Balanchine ballerinas, and um, there was uh, a lot of costume designers, and it was just a very creative, fascinating kind of little strange world, you know. How did you figure out that young that you wanted to be an actress? Oh, I knew when I was about six or seven because my mother in Cleveland brought me to a place called um, Heights Youth Theater where there was a very professional director named Jerry Leonard who expected of the seven-year-old kids a completely professional standard and would give you hell if you weren't living up to that. And I saw, you know, Alice in Wonderland and fell in love and decided I needed to be up there, just fell in love with it. I think I may have had in common with some other actors that, as I mentioned, my family was uh, shaky. It was uh, We were in shaky shape as a, as a unit. And I think that I saw a kind of a freedom and a magic up there that I felt that I could relate to and would make me happy and would take me out of my actual reality to some degree. I mean, I I didn't have this kind of uh, intellectual idea about it then, but looking back, that's what I think I fell in love with. And I was always in love with makeup. My father was an architect, a brilliant architect. My mother was a dancer and a jazz singer, and they had beautiful books around the house of fantastic ballets and all kinds of sets and um, art, and I used to spend every Sunday all day long sitting in the bathroom with my makeup kit from FAO Schwartz and making my face up to try and match some of the photographs or paintings that I had seen. So I was always in love with the aesthetic part of it, too. It's interesting to me that you mention that idea of professionalism in a children's theater, that you have to show up on time and be held to a certain standard. Yes. You want me to give you an example? Sure. Okay. So the first play I was in was The Wizard of Oz, and I was a munchkin. Not to brag. Not to brag, but I mean, listen, it's my history. So then, you know, the munchkins have this thing when Dorothy lands where they say, you know, don't go to the east for in the east, but don't go to the west for in the west. So, you know, we were seven and um, we just pointed our hands whatever direction we wanted. Don't go to the east. And he, Jerry, came storming down the aisle of the theater and explained to us, that there was an east, west, north, and south, and 
there were specific directions we had to point in. We couldn't just randomly throw our arms around. And so he really, he had this professional standard. Like if anybody checked, we were pointing to the east when we said east. What was the first time you got paid to act? I joined both unions when I was 14. SAG at the time, now it's SAG after. I joined SAG and Equity when I was 14 and um, was in union plays and in union movies and even a a pilot called The Happeners. And uh, (laughs) um, yeah, so 14. Were you like going off to were you taking advantage of your school's uh, leeway and just heading off to auditions all the time? Whenever I could. I mean, I didn't, you know, women of any age do not get as many auditions as men or boys. But whenever I could get one, I went to it, of course. What were you auditioning for? What what was 16-year-old Carol Kane's type? Was sixteen? No, not sixteen. Fourteen. I mean, I think I graduated when I was sixteen and um, got to be in Carnal Knowledge shortly thereafter with that Mike Nichols directed. But what was I auditioning for? Mostly theater. What kind of parts? Well, serious. In those days, I was a serious actress. In those days, I, I auditioned for the Prime of Miss Jean Brody on Broadway thirteen times and did not get it. I just thought I was would not survive. And then I did, um, was lucky enough to get to do it on the road with the fantastic Tammy Grimes, who we just lost. And that was a great experience. One of the things that I love about your character on Kimmy Schmidt is that, you know, I think it, in many ways, like parts of your career have been defined by the fact that you have a really distinctive voice and uh, you're really distinctive looking. Um, you're very beautiful, but you and you have this sort of wonderful grand hair and always have. Thank you. And that lends itself towards, you know, you've often played mousy characters. Mm. And one of the things that I love about Kimmy Schmidt is that it is so undeniably you, but it is also the furthest thing from a mousy character. It's a character with... No limits. She got to no a rather big mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And great writing. I know. That's kind of fun to just get to say anything. In fact, some of the things I say just shock me. You know, me, Carol. <laughs> like Lillian does things that I would never do. That I'd be way too self-conscious for. So it's kind of fun to be legally asked to do some shocking things and say some shocking things. Sometimes the jokes on Kimmy Schmidt, and this was true of 30 Rock as well, are so fast and dense and so complex that I lose them as a viewer. And I'm a very serious comedy viewer who prides himself on not missing anything, (laughs) right? And uh, I miss it sometimes. And I wonder, it, it must be extraordinarily challenging to nail every one of those intricate jokes. Well, it's very hard, but thank goodness uh, Gina Fay and Robert Carlock are very hands-on. They're down there on the floor with us. And if we don't get it, we do it again, and they explain it, and they fix it until it's until you got it. They don't go away from it. Unless, and then 
the other thing is about Kimmy, which I've never experienced before, is that there are things that I say on Kimmy that I don't understand what they mean at all. They're so um, up-to-date that they're almost like ahead of time. You, you know, and they, they are things to do with the, the modern computer world and everything that's hip and cool and of the moment. And I don't know. I've got references to, you know, things that I say. I just say them and people laugh and and then later I say, well, what does that mean? You know, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll try and understand what it means before I say it. And they try and explain to me, and I sometimes still don't understand. But I commit and I do my best. You mentioned Carnal Knowledge, which was your, your first significant film role, right? Yes, it was. And it must have been something extraordinary to be a teenager and walk into a room with your first movie director, and it's Mike Nichols. It was shocking. <laughs> and especially because when I was cast, um, they were already shooting up in Vancouver, and I was in New York, and I went to Marion Dougherty's office and met Juliet Taylor, who was um, Marion's partner at the time, and assistant, and she explained to me, they're already shooting, they haven't been able to find this character yet and I'm going to be sending Mike your photograph and resume and stuff like that in Vancouver. So she did that and then we got word back that I was to fly up to Vancouver and if Mike liked me I would be staying to shoot the whole part and if it didn't work out I would be back on a plane the next day. And I'm a teenager you know, my mother later explained to me that behind my back, she got on the phone with the producer and said, if you're going to put my daughter through this, you're going to fly her first class, you know, <laughs> which I think at the time was a rule anyway. But, uh, but <laughs> and, you know, because she knew how depressed I would be if I didn't get it. But instead, you know, I walked in this office up there in the studio out in the middle of the woods in Vancouver, and I met Mike and... um he was a miracle. He is a miracle in my life. You know, he's such a great artist, and he accepted me in like I was supposed to be there. And, uh, well, going back to the whole thing about childhood, I think I, in some ways, felt that I was home for the first time. And then he took me into the screening room where they were showing the rushes, and in that room was Jack Nicholson, Jules Pfeiffer, and Arthur Garfunkel, you know, sitting around, talking, hi, this is, you know, Carol. I mean, I was just in shock, you know, and I did get to stay, and I did get to work on that movie with those, with that brilliant script and brilliant actors, DP, um, Mike was a genius, Mary Ellen Mark, she was the still photographer. She took one of the best pictures of me just out in the woods with no makeup that anyone has ever taken. It's a work of art. She was an artist, and that's... I was privileged to start that way and then, you know, privileged to continue along those same lines with Hal Ashby and Sidney Lumet and Woody Allen. And, I mean... I look back and I just can't understand how such things could have happened to me. Did you understand contextually at the time 
how significant the things that you were getting to work on were? Or because it was your first work, did you think, I, I guess this is what it's like? You're just there with Mike Nichols or you're just there with Hal Ashby or you're there with Sidney Lumet? I think it's, uh, my reaction would be a combination of both things. I think because I was so young, I did not understand the potential for failure. I think the older I got, the more I would sort of back into the meeting room or audition room because I already knew that the big chances were on rejection. But in those days, I didn't understand that, you know, so... I think I was more myself when I went in uh, because I, I I think I felt that that was my world, you know. And looking back, I can't believe my fortune. But at the time, I also, of course, knew the quality of the artistry of those directors. And, um, you know, it's never like I took that for granted, but I think I took more for granted the idea that I might fit in. And that's significant in the way you present yourself in a room. You know, you're not chattering with your teeth and going in backwards, which is my technique nowadays. <laughs> More of my interview with Carol Kane after a quick break. She'll tell me about how, even after almost five decades of acting, she's never gotten over being rejected for a part. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you so you aren't overwhelmed with tons of resumes. Plus, ZipRecruiter actively invites the top candidates to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. Try it for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, we talk to a Latina pioneer in science, one of the first and few Latinas to work in the Jet Propulsion Labs at NASA. Her name is Silvia Acevedo, and she's now the CEO of the Girl Scouts. That's next time on Latino USA. Is there a dog in a car at a bar on the street? Yay! I'm Allegra Ringo, a small dog owner. My dog Pistachio howls when she's excited. And I'm Renee Culvert, a big dog owner. My dog Tugboat tips over when he's sleepy. And we co-host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog that airs every Tuesday. We bring you all things dog. Yes, dog news, dog tech, dogs we met this week. We also have pretty famous guests on Butt Legs. We're not going to let them talk about their projects. No. Just want to hear about those dogs. We don't want to hear about your stuff, only your dogs. So join us every Tuesday on Max Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Carol Kane. She's a legendary character actress. She's on the TV show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is now in its final season on Netflix. I mean, I think it's amazing to me that you, as someone who's worked as an actress for nearly 50 years, uh, Why, yeah, you're a- and a lot of actors, part of what they develop in their lives is a kind of defense against failure because they never get the part. I couldn't do it. And you got the reverse. Like you you were blindly you were blindly falling into beautiful and spectacular art at the beginning of your career and didn't have to worry about it and when the reality of failures started to hit you, 
it weighed upon you more and more as your career went on rather than the reverse. Oh, definitely more and more. My mother is always saying to me, honey, you just got to try and develop a, a little thick skin, you know. And I just never was able to do that. I just, I guess the best example of that is that a few years ago, I was on Broadway in Wicked. And during that time, I was asked to audition for Pippin on Broadway to uh, replace the genius Andrea Martin. And for various crazy reasons, the audition process went on for about a year because I'd be scheduled, but then the director would be directing something else out of town, and they they were trying to get everybody in the same room at the same time, and that kept not happening for all kinds of reasons. And I kept hiring a, a vocal coach every time over a period of a year because I'm not a natural singer, even though I was fortunate enough to do Wicked, but I'm the Rex Harrison kind of, the talk singer. And... I would study and study, and then it didn't work out. And I studied and studied. I finally got to audition, and I thought it had gone rather well because the everybody in the theater stood up and applauded after my audition. And then I didn't get it. And I was so devastated, you know. I was just crawling around the floor <laughs> weeping. And um, then I thought to myself, you can't do this anymore. I realized that I couldn't take it, that I was too old to put myself through that anymore. And I stopped. And as soon as I stopped, the miracle happened that I got called to meet with Tina and Robert and Jeff Richmond, the Kimmy Schmidt people, and I was also offered to play the role of the Penguin's mother on Gotham. Both of those things happened right after I said, I can't do it anymore, the auditioning. So, I don't know, that's just a miracle, but it, it's true. I want to play a clip of you in 1975. My guest is Carol Kane, and this is from Dog Day Afternoon, which was directed by Sidney Lumet. Yes. And your character's name is Jenny, and um, the, the film is about a group of people being held hostage uh, at a bank. And Sonny, who's played by Al Pacino, is is one of the bank robbers who is holding them hostage. And in this scene, and John Cazale, exactly. And and he calls uh, he he calls you into the room to tell you that your husband's on the phone. Oh, and yeah. we'll also hear that in the middle of the conversation, uh, Sonny gets a phone call from the chief of police. So we'll hear Sonny first. There was Jenny here. Who's Jenny here? That's me. It's a squabble. You got a husband? Yeah, well, he's on a phone. Go ahead. But what could I tell him? I don't know. Tell him whatever you tell him. Tell him the truth. Oh, what a comedy. WNEW plays all the hits. Listen, now don't hang up. First off, is anybody hurt now? No, nobody's hurt. Well, you keep away from this banker. We're going to start throwing bodies out the front door one at a time. You got that? Listen, don't do that now. Wait a minute. Let me talk to you for a while, huh? How many people you got in there, eh? I can... No, you call me back. Call me back. Excuse me. He said he wants to know what time you'll be through. What? Oh, girly, please. Uh, that was Charlie Durning, uh, the brilliant Charlie Durning as the chief of police on the phone. Sidney Lumet directed 
movies in a way as though he were directing theater, right? He was Yes. We rehearsed like a play. By the time the rehearse and most movie directors tend not to like to rehearse very much. But Sydney, um we got in a rehearsal room and we worked for three and a half, four weeks on the movie and we got to the point where we could run the whole script from top to bottom, <clears throat> because and which is so helpful because movies are not usually shot in any kind of continuity. But if you get to rehearse the whole thing, then you organically are familiar with where you might be at any, any given time. This is pretty great. I feel like it might have been a benefit to be able to do that if you are a nervous performer, that you, by Getting the whole thing as second nature, it gives, it gives you a certain kind of freedom. Oh, yes. And and by the way, though, most people are nervous performers. <laughs> I mean, uh, not everybody maybe is in such a panic as I when they go in for auditions, but I don't know too many performers who don't. But you know why that is? Because the, the really wonderful actors, uh, musicians, whatever, Oh, painters uh, are perfectionists, and so you're not um, nervous necessarily for the other people. You're nervous because you're wrestling with yourself to be as good as you know you're supposed to be, you have to be, you must be. So, of course, when you're allowed to really uh, inhabit a, a role uh, in the way that that rehearsal time gives you, the freedom is fantastic. And also, you get to know your fellow players in a way. You're not just, you know, half the time you're saying, oh, nice to meet you, and then you're in, in bed with somebody in a love scene. But this way, you you really know each other as people. You You can look into each other's eyes and know, interpret the kind of feelings that you're getting in such a personal way. It's really a luxury. Anyone who works in my office will tell you that there are moments where we're trying to do work of some serious public radio. I mean, my job as a public radio host is to inform and educate the the populace yes. and provide them with a high-class arts education, etc. And I will, in the course of a very serious um, of a very serious interaction, start laughing while staring off into the middle distance because I'm just thinking of something funny that happened on Kimmy Schmidt. Like Aww. I think a lot about a time when one of the characters said, "Stop the presses, my panini can wait." Uh, yeah, it's just yeah. I'll play a season three scene. So your character runs for city council to basically she is in a way represents the spirit of Bohemian New York. She's very passionate about everything gross and free and exciting about living in New York. The individuality of neighborhoods, exactly, which is going away everywhere and certainly in New York. Uh, Jane Krakowski's character, Jacqueline, uh, is very rich and represents a very um, a very rich sort of Central Park Westy uh, voice. And um, uh, she is opposing uh, Lillian's uh, run for uh, neighborhood council because uh, she's, she's trying to run for neighborhood council to, to – uh, end gentrification, essentially. And Ellie Kemper's character, Kimmy, the main character, is caught in between them. Her 
two uh, sort of mentor figures in a funny way. Uh, and basically this scene is uh, the two of them trying to talk Ellie into uh, going their way. Oh, okay, now listen, you're going to vote for me tomorrow, aren't you, dear? Of course. But if you vote for her, she's going to stop me from bringing clean water to this neighborhood. Really? Mm-hmm. That's why you need to vote for any candidate but Lillian. No! <laughs> if this yuppie b- and her yuppie boy can clean up the sludge front, boy, yuppies are moving. And you know what yuppies eat? Brussels sprouts. Yeah. And ice cream that tastes like lavender. No, that's a smell. But you'll have the most beautiful new waterfront with ducks in it. Ducks that have babies. Aw, how many? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Our rent will be jacked up so high, we'll probably have to move to Hart Island where they bury all the unclaimed bodies. Now I forget... Do you like sleeping in a giant pit full of skeletons? You know I don't. (laughs) That's a smell. Um, You know, as a very nearly lifelong New Yorker now, it must be fun to get to be that, you know, as grand and ridiculous as the character is, she is an advocate for something really beautiful, uh, something that I know a lot of people who live in New York and who have lived in New York really care about, which is what's what's special about it, the, the craziness. The melting pot of it all, the individuality, the uh, fantastic array of colors and shapes and sizes of people and bookstores and uh, movie theaters that are not chain movie theaters, all of the things that are rapidly disappearing about the city, neighborhoods. You know, the New York is full of every nationality of neighborhood. And now every, a lot of things are getting kind of homogenized together so that um, when you... I mean, I remember when you got on a subway on the Upper West Side, there'd be a certain special individual thing about that neighborhood, and you would go down town, way downtown, and get off the subway, and everything would be completely different there. And now, you know, you get on the subway uptown, and there's Dwayne, Dwayne Reed, am I allowed to say yeah, that? Yeah, sure. And then uh, you get on the subway way, way downtown, and get off, and there's the same Dwayne Reed, and everything else, all the banks. and the, So that, that's a shame, you know, the neighborhoods are, are going away. Did you ever have a person in your life like this? I mean, this character reminds me of multiple neighbors that I had as a kid in the Mission District in San Francisco. Does it? Mrs. Yeah. Love, who once threatened to kill my dog if it peed on her house anymore at a time God when I was her. young enough to <laughs> oh, young enough to still not understand that that was not a literal threat. Oh, God. My mom had to explain to me that oh. it wasn't literal. Yeah, I mean, of course, if you live in New York, you know those people. I mean, just let's talk about Radio Man, if you want to know one of those people. I mean, yes, there's a lot of uh, oversized characters. Wait a minute. Can we talk about Radio Man? Do you know who Radio Man is? No. Well, then it doesn't really – it won't be that interesting to talk about. But Radio Man (laughs) is a man who lives in New York who looks like a very scruffy bum who also – in an acknowledged way for many people, bore a shocking resemblance in his features to Robin Williams. 
especially if Robin had a beard or something like that. But he goes everywhere with uh, radio around his neck and plays his radio, and he's an autograph hound uh, seeker, and he is outside every theater for a million years. He has also been in many, many movies now, many movies as himself as Radio Man. And uh, he actually, at this point, and he knows where everything is shooting in New York on any given day, he can tell you. And now if you call his cell phone number, which he has online, then there'll be a rundown of who's shooting where, what, you know, where Bobby is, where Al is. He, he knows who, what's happening everywhere in the city. Uh, but he's also still outside uh, getting autographs in, at night. And so he's just a supreme, fantastic example of a New York character fixture. Carol Kane, I couldn't be more grateful to you for uh, coming in and talking to me. What a what a joy and an honor it was to get to talk to you. I feel the same way. Thank you. No, false flattery, but I'll take it. <laughs> Carol Kane, everybody, catch her in the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It's on Netflix right now. She's so wonderful on the show. Uh, just what a what a joy she is. What a joy. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our temporary producer, Ragu, saw some firefighters extinguishing a palm tree and an oven range in the park on his second day coming to Max Fun. Uh, he says that he has many, many, many questions. Uh, the show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He is away in Italy, so Ragu Manavalan filled in for him this week. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Shana Deloria. We're actually hiring another production fellow. If you Google Maximum Fun Production Fellow, you will find the job listing. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan for sharing it. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Our thanks to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries, who made that possible. And did you know that we have been making this show for 15 years? There are hundreds and hundreds of interviews available to you for free on our website at MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.